Welcome to Phone Messages, episode 153. It's Mom. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I play message number seven from my mom. And it is a special episode because it is my first interview with her. It comes from the fall of 1989 and is two seconds long. Here we go. Papa, Tom. Did you recognize your voice? No, not really. So you didn't really recognize that it was you? Well, if you tell me it is, and if I said it's Mom. You said, Paul, Paul, it's Mom. Okay. Does that sound like something you would say? Well, yeah, that sounds like something I would say. Now, here's the question I wanted to ask you. I believe you were working at Episcopal Church Home at this time. So do you remember what your job was? I was like assistant to the uh, executive director. It was a building of Beckwood. That's where I first went to my office. We were in an apartment there at Beckwood trying to finish selling the units. And I had to write a newsletter to mail out to people to get them interested in coming to visit Beckwood so that they might buy an apartment. We had developed talking points, and one of them I remember was that people come here to have a good life in their later years, not to die, and that we take people from all religions, so people didn't think Episcopal Church or more like Episcopalians. Sometimes I would do an interview on one of the residents, and then I actually went to the printing place when they started printing it so I could see a proof before they finished rolling off the whole newsletter, and I'd say, oh, that needs to be bigger, that picture, and I want the print uh, in a different font, you know, in the size of the print. I didn't want it really little because I'm sending it to older people, you know. You initially worked at uh, Beckettwood, but then your office moved? Yeah, when we sold out the apartments, our office was in an apartment. So we moved over to Episcopal Homes where I was in the kiln room. Tell me about the kiln room. (laughs) Well, it was tiny, and my friend Barb that worked with me, she was kind of an assistant to me by then. We were laughing because we think we were drinking each other's coffee. Could you tell that it was a kiln room? Was there? Well, no, only because it was small, but there was good light in there. Was there a window? No, no window, no. It was just like a big closet. They had stopped using the kiln room for art projects over there. The thing is, when the first started, people were not as sick as where it was like in 1989. There was just a lot of uh, retired school teachers and people that just needed to have a home, you know, so they had activities for them. Was that the last location of your office, was the kiln room? No, no. Then they started to build another well, let's see. We went over to a little house that they owned. Barb and I went over to a little house, and then I was in the laundry room, and she was in the kitchen. And then they tore down that little house, and uh, we're going to build another building. So we went back to the kiln room. Then I was helping with the building of the new building, and I worked with the architect. And then we had to set up a model in the building So when people came to look at the new building, they could see how their furniture would fit in there. Then I also, some people, the first people that were interested, I also went out to their home and gave them a sales pitch. And then they could come and put a hard hat on, and then I took them around, you know, while they were building it. 
That sounds like you're getting more into the area of sales. Well, I, at my first review, I said to my boss, I said, I'm just doing a lot of different things. And he said, that's what we need in this organization. Did you ever have any dealings with the press? Well, first of all, I, I had the woman from the Highland Villager. She wrote some stories for me, like about animals that were being used at the Episcopal home to calm people down or something like that. And then uh, some television stations came to cover a couple parties. That was a little more difficult because I had to get permission from all the people that were at the party for them to be have their face on TV. You know, that lady at the head of that table, she hasn't given me permission, so you can only film these three people over here. And I'm sure that didn't go over big. Were there any particular crises that you had to kind of deal with? We tore down Porky's to build another building. I bet that was controversial. Well, the only thing I remember about that is one lady called me and she said, oh, it's just terrible that you took down that big oak tree. Then the other thing is people had been going to Porky's for years. I mean, people liked going there. It was a drive-in. You could sit in your car and order a hamburger or french fries. Did you ever go to Porky's? Yes, I went to Porky's. It was close to where I was working, just right on the corner. Porky's Drive-In opened on St. Paul's University Avenue in 1953. It was the third of four Porky's opened by Roy Trulson and his son Ray in the 1950s. The other three were all in Minneapolis. After World War II, drive-in restaurants and movie theaters catered to the booming car culture, produced in part by FHA-subsidized suburbanization, which, as I have mentioned in previous episodes, excluded African Americans. At their peak, there were perhaps 50 drive-in joints in the Twin Cities, with car hops in below-the-knee skirt uniforms, bringing burgers and shakes on trays that attached to car door windows. The popularity of drive-ins declined in the 1970s with the rise of fast-food restaurants that had drive-through service, which saved money on the cost of servers. And during St. Paul's bitter winters, eating with the window rolled down proved unpopular. The Trulsons closed one of their Minneapolis Porkies and converted the other two to indoor restaurants in the 70s, renaming them after Ray's wife Nora, who first met Ray as a car hop and after marriage became a business partner. The Porkies on University closed in 1978. And during the 1980s, it became a symbol of urban blight, with peeling paint and weeds bursting through cracks in the parking lot pavement. In 1989, under a new ordinance, Ray Trulson was given 90 days by the St. Paul City Council to repair or demolish the building. And Trulson decided to restore the restaurant and reopen but this time with only drive-through service. The reopening was a success, and in 2003, Porky's celebrated its golden anniversary with couples who met at the drive-in renewing their wedding vows. Seven years later, 
The construction of a light rail line along University Avenue disrupted business. So in 2011, Nora Trulson, who took over the restaurant after her husband died in 1994, decided to sell the property to Episcopal Homes. My mom was actually retired when the sale was made, so her memory of someone complaining about a tree removal was regarding an earlier expansion. But after retirement, she stayed in contact with the board of directors, so she was well aware of the controversy surrounding Porky's. Upon hearing of its closing, some suggested the historic structure be moved to the nearby state fairgrounds. But in the end, the building was saved by Steve and Sylvia Bauer, owners of the Little Log House Pioneer Village, a collection of restored buildings in rural Hastings, 30 minutes south of St. Paul. The yellow and black checkered structure, with its space-age design and neon pig's head, no longer serves food, but once a year in the last weekend of July, its parking lot is revived with classic cars as part of the Little Log House Antique Power Show. If you want to park on my podcast, please contact me through my website, pfoch.com. That's P-F-O-T-S-C-H dot com. Many thanks to my mom for sharing her memories. And thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.